What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 738. Description begins in the writer's imagination, but should finish in the reader's. Stephen King. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur Method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Well, guys, today on the show, we have Rebecca Windsor. Now, Rebecca happens to be in charge of Warner Brothers Writing and Directing Labs. And what these programs do is allows new writers and directors access to getting work inside of Warner Brothers and television. And it's been very mysterious over the years. I've heard about these programs for many, many years, and not many people know what goes on behind the scenes. How do you get in? What are they looking for? How do you submit? All these kind of things. So I wanted Rebecca to come on the show to discuss the writer's uh, lab, but also the director's lab. So if you're a writer or a director out in the audience, this is an episode that you want to take a listen to. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Windsor. I'd like to welcome to the show, Rebecca Windsor. How you doing, Rebecca? I'm good. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. We, uh, we have a a history together because our kids uh, used to go to school together. And that's how we met originally. And I think one day I realized, like I, you said it in passing, like, oh, I work at Warner Brothers. I'm like, wait, what do you do? And I think one day, like we, I was walking my girls to school and you like stopped me. I'm like, you're famous. You're on the LA Times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we discovered- I just thought you were some guy that like, I don't know, maybe worked in sound design or I don't know. Like I knew you were tangentially related, but like I didn't know what you did. And then I saw you on the front cover of the LA Times and I was like, oh my <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And my girl's like, why did, why, why, why did, why did, why did, why did it stop you? What's going on? <laughs> and it was so funny. She's like, are you famous, daddy? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I've got less than five minutes. <laughs> For the day you were famous. For the day I was famous. I did get a lot of emails that day. Um, but yeah, but we, and we just recently ran into each other at the Austin Film Festival, um, which was also a pleasant surprise. I'm just walking around like, Rebecca. And, it was uh, and out of context, I'm like, 
have it. I was like, what is your face doing in this like barbecue mixer? And then it was like, I put two and two together. Oh, yeah, you moved to Austin last year. Of course you would be here. <laughs> exactly. So um, but I, so after after uh, talking a bit, we're like, you got to come on the show because I don't think anybody really knows um, the inside workings of what you do over at Warner Brothers um, and uh, the workshops and things that you were uh, that you are uh, in charge of. But before we get there. How did we get started in this insane business? <laughs> uh, I will try and tell the uh, Cliff's Notes version, or sure. I don't know what the kids are calling it, the new Cliff's Notes, something else, right? The YouTube video version, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I grew up in San Diego um, from the time I was, I mean, from as long as I can remember, I wanted to be an actor. Um, I actually auditioned and got a call back for Punky Brewster. Um, I did not get the rule, um, but it was all I ever wanted to do. So I went to Northwestern and studied theater. And then from there, I moved to New York. I think, uh, you know, New York was always the dream of, you know, go be a struggling actress. And, you know, theater is much more um, important <laughs> and prestigious than, you know, coming to L.A. And I think also at the back of my head, being from California, it just made the most sense that I you know wanted to go to New York. So um went to New York. Uh, spent most of my time working in restaurants and bars and, you know, uh, taking acting classes and, you know, doing like really, really terrible student films and um, off, 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 off Broadway, Black Box Theater, but really, you know, uh, <laughs> was not making a living from it. Um, and, and that was fine because I, you know, I was young and I thought, you know, I was living the life and it felt like what I always told myself was you just have to persevere. You know, people stop pursuing acting all the time. And if I'm, if I stick it out and I get the one job, then it'll just be a domino effect, you know, a work that gets work and then, you know, I'll have a career. Um, so that was the plan. And then, you know, after a few years, as I saw, uh, it wasn't happening as fast for me. And um, also you can't tell from Zoom, I'm six feet tall, so I'm not the most easily castable actor out there. I'm never going to be an ingenue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I... I think it was that and looking at my friends who were also actors who I felt like were even more ambitious and more dedicated than I was. I mean, I was dedicated, but I also wanted to have a life, you know, I, and, and then when I met my now husband, I think that was the real thing where, you know, it's one thing when you're, you know, 22, 23 uh, and you think about buying a home and getting married and having kids. Those are hypothetical things that will happen at some point in your life. But when I met my now husband, I made those things a little bit more tangible uh, as something that could happen soon. And so I think it was it was hard for me to sort of say out loud that I don't want to pursue acting anymore. Um, and so I kind of, you know, I just kind of kept going through the motions, even though I don't think I ever stopped wanting to act. Um, you know, the passion is still there, but it's just the life of an actor. <laughs> as, oh, you it's know, brutal. It's, it's not tedious. Um, and I'm too, I don't know, type A, too, you know, kind of career oriented to, um, I think, to, to that, that business part of it and the fact that so much is out of your control as an actor, um, that you have to wait for someone else to give you a job as opposed to your filmmaker. You, you find a way to make your films or you're a writer and you can write. No one has to give you the opportunity. But as an actor, someone has to give you the opportunity. And it just felt I had like I had no control over it. So anyways, all of that. You know, combined with, I think, uh, New York running its course for me. I love living there, but it's pretty, you know, tough place to live. And I always felt the pull to come back to California. So we got married. We moved back to California. Then it felt like, okay, now I have to start out acting again in a brand new city, find new management, all of that. It just felt like a insurmountable, you know, rock being pushed up a hill. And so um, my sister-in-law, who uh, does not work in the industry, but a very smart lady uh, said to me, listen, you can go back to acting in six months or you can go back in 20 years. But if there's anything else you want to do, you should probably start thinking about it now because you're getting older and you're going to have to start out at the bottom and work your way up and it's going to get harder the older you get. So I thought those were wise words. Very and nice. um, I started reading. I don't even know if they still have it, but there used to be the UTA job list that would come out every year that listed, you know, assistant jobs and internships and things like that. So um, I got an internship back when, uh, you could still get unpaid internships, not for college credit. Cause I'd already graduated college. So I got an internship at a feature production company and learned about development and the light bulb in my head went off 
uh, where I was still able to use that creative muscle that I, you know, was using as an actor. But, you know, working with that, we're working with writers and, you know, making making scripts better. Um, so it, it still fulfilled that that drive and that, you know, desire and that passion, but hopefully with more of a career path. So um, had the internship. Everyone there said, go work at an agency, even if you don't want to be an agent. So I went, um, I got a job at um, a literary agency called Broder Web Turvin Silverman, which was a boutique agency um, that was small, but represented on the TV side, people like Shonda Rhimes and Chuck Lorre and um, Don Belisario created in CIS. So like they were a powerhouse in TV. And I went in thinking, no, I, I want to work in features, like a sexy job. Um, but the only desk that was open was a TV agent. Um, so I thought, okay, fine. I'll just take it for a couple of months and then move on to a, a feature desk when it opens. But we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I get on the TV desk and this was like the first renaissance of TV. Like the first year there was the Friday Night Lights pilot. And you had, you know, obviously like Sopranos and um, and Lost and like, you know, start starting to be this like really like this wealth of really amazing content. So I think it was that like seeing that the quality was there. And then also as I learned how the businesses work, I realized that I really like the television business. And I like the cyclical nature of it again, that like type A sort of structured brand that I have. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, this is the one thing that so many f- people coming up don't understand is like film, film, feature films are sexy. That's what, that's gets all the splash, but where people yeah. really make money is in television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and people don't think about that. And, and now thank God, you know, there is such an amazing renaissance in the creative of television. And I mean, pretty much started, with the Sopranos, it kind of, you know, David pretty much opened the, crashed the door yeah. open. And then everything, everybody just started doing this amazing work from Breaking Bad to Mad Men and so yeah. on and so forth. But, uh, but, but the people still, because of the sizzle, the Oscars are a lot sexier than the Emmys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, the but, but smart people in the business, television and like television directors do very well. Whereas feature directors are struggling yeah. To put, I just talked to a feature director the other day who will remain nameless, who's like, I've been nominated for Oscars and I, I have to do commercials to make ends meet um, because yeah. it's between job after job and he doesn't do like giant jobs that are paying him obscene amount, of, but he's very well known and he's still very, very well respected. I was like, that's the world we live in. That is, yeah. you know, that is the world we live in. It's not the 80s anymore. <laughs> A hundred percent. And, you know, and I can talk about this a little bit, you know, uh, later, but, you know, I have found just in the, in the last several years, as I talk to, you know, indie film directors and sort of try and like sell them on the director's <laughs> workshop and all of that. And and when I was first having those conversations, like six years ago, uh, I'd get a lot of, I'm sure I'll think about it. And you could tell they were like, why would I ever do TV? But to now people are like, oh my God, there's this, t-, you know, episodic directing. Like, yes, I, you know, I really want to do that, you know, both for, I think, you know, sustainability, like you said, just like making a living. But I think, again, uh, TV is a little bit sexier than it was before. So much. people's mind, mind, minds are open to it. So you, you know what's sexy, though? That check. <laughs> the check is very sexy. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. You know, not not living hand to mouth, you know, like in a tiny little studio apartment is, is sexy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, you uh, early in your career, you got to work with uh, or assist uh, Mr. Todd Lieberman, who is a very well-known producer who's done a few movies, not many, but (laughs) he's done done quite a few films. What was the biggest lesson you took away from working with Todd? Well, I think, you know, the the lesson, I don't know if it's specifically with Todd, but it's with that company, which is Mandel Films, that he runs with David Hoberman, and they, you know, made, like, a lot of really good movies, um, and, you know, very successful feature producers. Uh, the lesson, well, it basically, the lesson that could burn for me is I don't want to work in features. Um, and I took that, I took that job, you know, after having worked at the agency, and sort of at the agency, I was like, okay, I want to be a TV executive, and then I interviewed with Todd and I, you know, always take the meeting. And so I'm like, okay, I'm meeting the president of this big feature company. I'm never going to get it. And then he hired me and I thought, okay. And he told me in the interview, they were hiring a TV executive. So I thought, okay, if I'm working with the president, 
I will have my hands in everything. And and so, yes, right now it's mostly features, but the TV, you know, their TV side is growing too. So that's sort of why I took that job. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and I'll get to the, you know, your question in a second, but while I was there, you know, it, it just, you know, it's even for a successful feature company, it took them several years to get their TV business off the ground, which is now very successful. But at the time, you know, it was still like 90% of what I was doing was features. But so, yeah, I mean, it can, it, again, having the two and some odd years that I was there, we made five movies, which is, you know, pretty unheard of, for, you know, production companies these days. Um, and even still, it just, I just, that it's, and it was, you know, the, the pace, you know, we had movies that were, you know, had opened offices in pre-production and were like four weeks out of, of, of production and then just like fell apart, you know? And and things that were in development for years and years and years and then things that would fall apart and then we'd come back five. And I was just like, I can't deal with that. Like, I want to know that I'm working on something and then and it's either moving forward or it's dead. I don't want to spend five to 10 years, hope, you know, hoping that this project. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, 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 so, the way, that's not the way television works. Generally, they don't they don't No, no. And then I think and I think for him, you know, Todd is I mean, he's so smart. I mean, it was it was uh it was really like a masterclass in listening in, in like in being with a studio producer, you know, being able to listen in on his calls and hear how he navigated tricky situations and how uh, when, you know, like when he would get in the middle of, you know, I don't know, like an argument or like having to deal with a situation, being able to like be that mediator and make each person think that he was on their side and, you know, it like you know, fully supported them while he had to sort of navigate all those politics that need. It was really, it was pretty impressive. Um, so I think that, and, you know, and also just his taste and, and, and his, um, just his, uh, the amount of work that he did. I mean, he's a workaholic and that's what made him so successful. So young, um, right. uh, it's pretty intense at times, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he just has a drive like no other. Now, you also got a chance to work uh, at a little startup film festival called Sundance. Uh, <laughs> you worked I take the- all the credit for its success. Obviously, obviously. It was you and Bob. You and Bob all the way. Um, now, you worked over at the, the Institute, correct? Yeah. What did you do for Sundance? So, um, so there's, you know, the Sundance Film Festival and then there's the Sundance Institute, which runs the festival. So the festival is obviously the, the, the public facing uh, part of it that everybody knows about. The Institute is a nonprofit and it is dedicated to supporting independent film artists in various mediums through, through a, a lot of different programs. So I was in the feature film program, which was like the narrative side. There is a documentary side that is very successful. Um, they have... Um, New Frontier, which is like VR and AR and transmedia, you know, so they have a lot of different things like that. So uh, with the, within the feature film program, they run labs. Um, so there is Episodic Lab. I'm sorry, the Episodic Lab we started while I was there, but the ones that have sort of been around forever were uh, the Screenwriters Lab and the Directors Lab. And again, like the people who came through that are people like Quentin Tarantino and you know, and Ryan Coogler and Damien Chazelle and Chloe Zhao. And like, you know, it's just like it goes kind of on and on. And um, and I always love like one of the st- stories that I heard from way back when was one of the first projects that they had in like the very early 80s was a was a screenplay called 3000. That was um, that's the pretty woman. Isn't the pretty woman? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty woman. Yeah, yeah. 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 But like when it went through the lab, it was like a dark drama about uh, oh. her and, you know, uh, like a not happy. Ending. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, pretty woman. But, you know, yeah. again, um, you know, and, and like Taika Watiti and like all these people who just, you know, like the history and the legacy of, of what they've done is pretty amazing. So um, the labs are um, their talent pipeline programs. People apply to them. And 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 the goal is, how, you know, trying to find filmmakers um who uh, on, on the I think on on the director side of it they have to be first time director first time feature director so they they have to have made shorts I mean um, or they have to you know uh, done some work um, and on the screenwriter side I think they I think you're allowed to have had one feature credit I, I might go on the That's players right. um, but um, you know how do you take these independent artists who have and it's pro- project specific. So it's not just, you know, we're letting you in. It's we're letting you in and we're supporting you to try and get this film made. Um, and they are very intense um, labs that take place at the Sundance Resort, which is um, a little bit outside Park City. Um, 
there are like four to five day labs and it's sort of like boot camp uh, in the best, like in the best and the most intense sense, uh, like a creative boot camp where um, they bring in advisors again, you know, like the top writers and directors in in Hollywood and, and a lot of alumni who come back to act as advisors and you're assigned uh, advisor to have read your script and then you do these like two hour note sessions, you know, with, you know, again, these like, you know, ridiculously talented professionals who are trying to just give you ideas and help you make the best version of your film. And then you take all of that and go away. And, you know, then the next version is like the kitchen sink version, which is pretty terrible usually. And then you just sort of like let it marinate and see what are the things that I, you know, what were the common themes among all of the the feedback that I got that is worth incorporating. Um, so there's that, that sort of creative process. Um, and then post-lab Sundance is really involved in um, just helping you try to get your movie made, even though as a nonprofit, they don't produce it, they don't finance it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, it's, it's a lot of, um, you know, networking. How do we make connections? So if you uh, need to find a producer or an executive producer, right. you know, there's a lot of those people in their, in their, uh, the Sundance fa- extended family. So trying to find you those people, like what, what could, what can Sundance do to help you make your movie? Um, if it's, you know, introductions to financiers, is it, if it's introductions to casting directors, editors, whatnot. Um, and then also kind of, you know, again, continuing helping to develop the script. Um, and then, you know, ideally, hopefully you got to make the movie and, and it comes out and all that. So that's pretty, that's a pretty cool, yeah, I've heard of the legends of, of those labs. I've talked to a few people who've gone through them and it's, it sounds like summer camp, but for filmmaking, uh, and it's like the bad, you've got like insane ass actors who just show up yeah. and they're like working with like workshopping your idea and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, it sounds, it sounds amazing. Look, I, I, it sounds amazing. I think every, anybody, film- I mean, if anybody can get in, it is like the best experience. And you know, the other thing I will say about Sundance is that I know probably from the outside, it, sometimes can feel like very elitist or insular or whatever. And it's, it's the opposite of that. The people at Sundance that I work with are the most dedicated to the mission of supporting, you know, independent artists who are just trying to get their $500,000 movie made. So it's, it's, there's a lot of sacrifices that are made, um, you know, because, because the people who work there believe so strongly in it. Um, So it really is a, family of sorts you know in the best now i have to ask you because i found out during my research that you worked with a uh, an actor that worked at his production company mr samuel l jackson the legendary icon yeah. that samuel l jackson i gotta ask what's it like working with sam <laughs> um i mean it was it, it was awesome i mean he's amazing um i would say like the first time he ever came into the office, and this was this was the job I had before Sundance. Um, the first time, you know, obviously he's very busy, so it's not like he's coming to the office every day because he's off making movies and stuff, but still very involved. Um, but I remember the first time he came into the office, and at the time I was still an assistant, and he was meeting with my boss in the like one door over, but like the door was open, and I'm like, you know, sitting there typing and doing my work and stuff, but I can hear him, and it's just like you're hearing Sam Jackson's voice and you're just like, this is so weird. Cause it's like so, he, the voice is so iconic, you know? Um, but then I also remember like another time he came into the office, um, you know, it was like a year later and, and, and our offices was on the CBS Radford lot in studio city. And right next to uh, the lot uh, is a subway, you know, sandwich. Yeah. And he like, he like walks in carrying like a, his subway sandwich bag, like to eat. And I just, I just like kept thinking like, what did the sandwich maker like? This is working in that way for like Nikki minimum minimum wage, and like Samuel Jackson comes in, asks for a sandwich, and he's like making it. Like, um, hey, Chris, uh, he's probably like make me a, a mother, mother effing. So no, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no. I mean, what I will say about Sam is um, so nice and down to earth. You know, obviously very cool and 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 all of that, but um, really really smart. Also, um, you know, the great thing about that job is you know sometimes with these like talent production companies you know after driven pods mm-hmm. um the vanity deal it's like someone you know is just like oh yeah i want to make tv or whatever and it could and it was never about that uh for sam i think it came from the fact that he just was a voracious viewer of television and was really passionate about 
producing it and creating and being responsible for putting great TV out there. And it was the best version of that kind of a company where he, um, uh, he trusted, uh, my boss and I and, and our extensive TV experience to sort of advise him on like why this might work and why this might not, you know, but also, um, used, you know, being Sam Jackson to our advantage if it helped. So, you know, would go to like the network pitches so we could try and sell the project in the room. And, um, he would, he would give notes on, on material. And again, like his, his notes and his feedback were always so spot on because he's worked with the best filmmakers out there. So he knows story, he knows character. Um, but you know, if he had a note and you said, you know, oh, that's not going to work because X, Y, or Z, you're like, great, moving on. Like, I get it. So it was, um, it was a really wonderful experience. Um, and it was just, you know, I think like the biggest disappointment was that we just never got anything on the air, which happens with production companies. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, it takes you know. it takes a minute. Now, uh, as a side piece of trivia, uh, since you brought up the CBS lot, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, my wife and I actually owned an olive oil and vinegar gourmet shop for three years. And we were on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, right by Laurel Canyon. And our back door opened up into CBS. So what was your shop? Uh, it was it was called originally Ferrari Olive Oil. Oh, I didn't it, know that. It was right out there, and we don't get me it was it was a dark time in our lives. Uh, okay. We're talking about like uh, nine years ago, eight years ago, something like seven years ago, um, okay. something like that. And uh, it was right there at CBS. So I used to I used to actually get um, oh, who is it? Uh, oh God, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Always had to shoot in the back lot, right in, in our street. So the yeah. so the location guys like, hey, we're going to be shooting here. I'm like, well, you're going to have to pay me because you're going to disrupt my business. They're like, I know. <laughs> so they would just <laughs> pay off everybody. Just even if it was like two blocks away, we're like, hey, hey, yeah. you're disrupting business. <laughs> I think we must have just because I left. Um, I stopped working at CBS uh, and. May of 2012. So we must have just like we just just missed like over we overlap yeah. like six months maybe. Oh, um, so okay. yeah, oh, we had, I would have gone there and love. Yeah, no, we had some we had some good. Uh, we had a lot of celebrities that would come in and buy for the holidays and buy for their offices and things yeah. like that. But that was a it was a different life. It was a lifetime ago. But yeah. I just thought because everyone listening knows that everyone they always ask me whether they meet me. Did you really have an olive oil store? I'm like. Yes, it's a lar- long, dark story of, of times where I was, uh, I was burnt out by the business. <laughs> Makes sense. It can happen to the best of us. It happens to the best of us. Now, but, uh, so now currently you're working for um, Warner Brothers uh, in, the, uh, in the development, uh, well, in, in the workshop. What exactly do you do with Warner Brothers now? Uh, so I run the writer's workshop and the director's workshop. So two talent pipeline programs kind of similar to what Sundance does with their labs but focused on on television so one is uh for aspiring tv writers and one is for aspiring tv directors and do they and just and, and and they just submit like it's just an application yeah, process? They're, they're, yeah they're, both of them were application based so i guess just easier to talk about them one at a time so with the writers sure. workshop um uh the application is open the month of may we ask for a spec of a show that's on the air, um, which I know specs are a little bit out of fashion, um, but we do it for a couple of reasons. One, um, that is the job of a staff writer is you have to write in your showrunner's voice. So for us, if you if we're reading a spec of, you know, Mrs. Maisel or Stranger Things or whatnot, and it doesn't feel like the show, you have failed the assignment uh, and you wouldn't get, you know, you would be fired if you were working on a show and can't capture it. So, um, and I think also, you know, original pilots are very tough and it's, it's sometimes hard, you know, to do like an apples to apples comparing material. But if we have sort of a bar of where we know a show is meant like to be, uh, then we can, and also because we have such a high volume of applicants to get like 2,500 submissions. So to get through that material quickly. And again, you know, we're using like Mrs. Nasal as, as an example, like, okay, which are the ones that, you know, do not feel like the show. Okay, those are easy passes. And then, you know, go back and say, like, okay, which are the ones that really stand out? So we get through that. And then if you advance to the next round, then we would ask for an original pilot. Or it can be it can be a screenplay. It can be a play. Uh, just, a, you know, some original material. Because it is important to us to see what, you know, your voice is as a writer. Um, 
And then from there, we interview a smaller group of candidates. Um, it's very important because TV writing is a communal experience. So it is very important that we know that you are an okay, cool, chill person that can sit around for 10 hours with a bunch of people. So uh, the, the best advice, I, the best advice I've ever gotten and the be- and this is the advice I always tell people. What advice do you have for me working in the business? I go, the biggest piece of advice is just don't be a dick. Um, yeah. And if you, that is so valuable. And, and if you could just sit in a room with someone for eight hours and not want to kill them, that yeah. sometimes trumps talent. Because you might have two yeah. people who are equally talented. Maybe the other one's a little bit more talented. But if he's a, he or she is rough to work with, I always go with the person I can... Yeah, it's like, you know, the showrunner's putting together a dinner party. Like, who are the people right. that they're going to want to be with? Um, and yes, like, don't be a dick is like obvious um, <laughs> I mean, not, that it's still worth saying. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it's it's I mean, we will we look for more than that. I mean, there are people who are not dicks. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But like, <laughs> uh, don't, you know maybe you're a little socially awkward, you know, like they're nice people, but you're just like, or they're just so introverted that they just, you know, and I get everyone has nerves when they come in. Um, so there's a lot of that. And there's also just, you know, we're looking for that, like uh, that spark, you know, the je ne sais quoi of a person that's, you know, memorable, um, whether it's in talking about why they write what they write, you know, what drew them to to, to writing, you know, we, we want to feel passionate about championing these people um because i then have to put my name on the line when i try and get them staffed and then sending them to showrunners so it is a reflection on me so i really need to stand by them so it is it is um there's no exact science to any of it um but it's you know you know what when you when you meet that person and you go like oh yeah they are ready you know it's it's, it's a little bit of that so um so for the 2500 people we pick eight Oh, um, Jesus, that's, that's, um, that's almost as bad as Sunday. No, Sunday is much worse. That's like 30. It's also, yeah, it's a little similar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then and then the program uh, and I should say like you need to be in L.A. for this. We are actually back in person this year, which is really great. We're using the the same protocols that the studio is doing for writers or so everyone is vaccinated, masked and tested and stuff like that. But so it's very exciting to be in person. We did to be in L.A. We meet one night a week. So that people can have their you know day jobs at their writers' assistants or whatnot. Um, we meet from October through March, um, and a lot of the workshop is focused on everything else that you need to know to be successful beyond the writing. Maybe we will work on their writing, but again, it's so competitive. So if you've gotten in, we acknowledge you're a talented writer, um, but there are so many other factors that you know and things you need to learn that are like the soft skills of being in a writer. So what 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 are a couple what are a couple of those soft skills? So we bring in, you know, showrunners and executives. We do everything from a class that's just an overview, like a macro level overview of how the business works. And then we do a lot of uh, other classes. So like we we will do a class on interviewing skills. You know, how do you prepare for a general meeting with an executive versus you're meeting a showrunner to get a job on your show? Um, we do a class um, on uh, going to set. You know, oftentimes the writer of the episode will be sent to set to produce the episode and they act as the proxy for the showrunner. So your first time staff writer and you go to set, you know, and um, how do you how do you interact with the episode's director if they're maybe not getting the things that, you know, your showrunner wants? What do you do when the actors don't want to save the lines? Um, and sometimes, you know, you can call your showrunner, you know, sometimes they're not available. So really trying to see, you know, what what's expected in that situation. Um, we do an improv class to get writers to think on their feet and not censor themselves. So often in a writer's room with, with you know, uh, younger writers or newer writers, there's so much pressure put on themselves to pitch something perfect that's going to save the episode uh, and it may not land. And then you just let it sit there beating yourself up going like, idiot, I shouldn't have said, you know, and then you get in your head and then you don't keep pitching. So we want to take that pressure off, know that no one's judging you. They're judging their own bad pitches that didn't land and just <laughs> keep going. Um, we do we do like a group writing exercise because oftentimes um, a lot of shows especially when they're under the gun and behind schedule will kind of Frankenstein a script together. They'll just say, you two writers are doing act one, you two writers are doing act two and so on and so forth. And then you have to put it all together and make it cohesive. So we do a lot of those kinds of exercises. Um, We talk about 
difficult rooms. You know, we have sort of a cone of silence class where we hear from some people about some of the challenges they've faced in in challenging rooms and how do you manage, how do you get through it, how do you find allyship? Um, when is it time to, you know, leave? Uh, do you speak up? Do you not? Um, so those are those kinds of classes. And then we also do uh, a simulated writer's room, um, which is like when we get into like factual sort of writing work. Um, and everyone is assigned a spec of a show to write. And then they have to get the deadlines that are expected in a real world circumstance. So uh, they come in and they pitch their story area for their episode. Okay. And A story, it's where this is happening and the B and the C. And uh, they have to, you know, write that. And then the next week they turn in their B sheet. The next week they turn in their outline. They write their script over Christmas break, and then they have one week to revise. So we're looking to see if those writers can write strong material quickly under pressure. Um, but also, we have everyone in the class read each other's material before they come into class so that we can act like a writer's room. Because it's one thing to say, you know, do this, don't do that. And it's another to put it into practice and see if someone is talking too much and not giving anyone else any space or... Someone had a good idea and then got really long-winded and should have stopped talking three minutes ago. Or I can tell someone has something to say, but they don't want to say it until it's perfectly articulated. <laughs> right. At which point we probably moved on. So, um, you know, it's just learning how to how to give feedback in a collaborative, collaborative, positive way and take feedback in a non-defensive way and then be able to incorporate it into your material. Um so then how does it, so that's, that's the, that's the writer's workshop, which all sounds fantastic. If you want to be a television writer, yeah. I mean, if you can There's get a in, lot of successes, yeah. <laughs> if you could be one of the eight, I mean, that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty awesome. Now the directing set, how does that work? Um, so it's similar in philosophy of taking, you know, directors who have not directed episodic before. So they come from indie film or commercials or music videos or whatnot. Um, it's different in a few important ways. I think the biggest distinction and the reason for the distinction is that breaking into episodic directing is maybe the hardest thing to do in the industry even if you've made features because yeah. here you know if you're a writer and you've got your first job as a staff writer you are one of many writers on a staff and you're low man on the totem pole so you're not expected to do the heavy lifting and save the episode you're just there to pitch ideas and keep the conversation going but as the director of the episode you are the captain of the ship so there is reluctance from a lot of showrunners to give their $5 million episode over to someone who hasn't done TV before. So, so that's where we step in is to kind of mitigate that risk, if you will. So, um, so uh, it's also application-based and the application will be open. Uh, I think it's January 7th to February 6th coming up um, to apply. You just need to upload up to three pieces of material um, and then, you know, personal statement and, and whatnot. Um and the other difference is in the selection process. Uh, so we will review everyone's material, decide who we're really excited about, meet the finalists. But at the same time, we also start talking to our shows and identifying which shows are open to a first-time director. We have several that have, um, are really supportive. They've had success with previous directors out of the program, so they're likely to say yes. And then we also have many shows that are not supportive because... You know, for one reason or another, I mean, we do a lot of big like superhero shows and genre things with action and stunts and green screen that not every uh, emerging director has in their portfolio. But anyways, once we've identified the um, the shows that will support it, we would then match make and send each showrunner three directors material and have them watch the material and have the showrunner meet them. And if there's one out of that group that they want to support, they let us know and that gets them into the workshop. But by doing so the showrunner is also guaranteeing them an episode on the upcoming season. Um, and the reason we do that, is it means that obviously not as many people get in because we've sent them three directors, they're only picking one. But it's really important to us to not just be a shadowing program. There are several directing talent, you know, pipeline programs around and they all have value, but some of them only offer shadowing, which is a great learning experience. But we really wanted our workshop to lead to work and be a pathway. And so... Less people get in, but those that get in know they have a job with them. So how many so how many submissions do you get and how many actual directors get work? Um it's so we get less submissions than the writers workshop because as you imagine, uh not a, it costs money to direct things. So not twenty five hundred people may not have <laughs> lots of material. So I would say it's usually around like the five hundred mark, okay. um, depending on the year. Um and in terms of how many people get in, it changes year to year because 
It depends on how many people we get episodes for. Um, I would say the average is between six and 10. Um, but again, it, sh- it, it, it changes year to year again, like COVID like threw us into a tizzy. We didn't do it last year. It was, you know, um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming year. Um, and then the workshop itself is a nine week masterclass that we do like end of May to beginning of, or end of May to end of June. Um, it's taught by two uh, directors, Bethany Rooney, Mary Lou Belli, who have over 300 episodes between them. And they've written a book on episodic directing, which is on our website. And What's the name of the book? Uh, it's called Directors Tell the Story. Oh, uh, I got to get them on the show. I got to get them on the show. It, you should. It's it's a really great book. Listen, I didn't go to film school, so I don't know, you know, I don't know lenses. I don't know any of that stuff. And so it's, it's a very approachable book. It's not a dry technical book. There's a lot of anecdotes. And what the book does is take you from prep through post, like what is the process and, uh, of, of episodic directing? So we use that book as our curriculum. And again, the, the class is not directing 101 because everyone that's gotten in, we've watched the material, we know they're talented. It's really about how is the medium of TV different and what do you need to know to be successful? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And you have to be in, and you have to be in LA for this as well. And you what you have to be in LA for this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. got it. But it's a it's a shorter span of time. So we have had people who just like get an Airbnb for a month or two, you know. Um and so part of the class, like the first few classes are lecture based again using the book. Um, just kind of talking about the nuts and bolts. You show up on day one of prep, what to expect. You go into a concept meeting, who's running it, what do you expect to to know? What do you need to start thinking about? The questions that are gonna be asked of you. Um, when you go on the tech scout, these are the people who are going with you. Uh, in the tone meeting, you know, with the showrunner, you know, that's your last opportunity to have certain conversations. So kind of breaking down th- that whole process. Uh, we'll also have a script that we're working off of for the duration. It's usually, a, you know, some TV show that one of them has directed in the past. So everyone will have homework of blocking and shot listing and doing all the creative prep you would normally do with, you know, character intentions and obstacles and themes and motifs. And then we spend the last several classes putting scenes from that script on their feet. Uh, so we work on one of our sound stages and bring actors in for the day. And then every uh, director gets a chunk of time to work the scene and get it to where they want it, you know, in blocking and, and in performance. And then then they will get feedback from Bethany and Mary Lou on on a technical level. You know, how was your blocking? Did it feel organic? Did people get like boxed into a corner? It was really weird. Uh, is it, you know, was there more movement? And then um, how was your coverage? Did you did you get all the shots you needed to? Did you miss anything? Um, did you cross the line? Is there possibly a more efficient way to get what you want by combining these two shots? It's going to save you time in your day. Um, and then they will also get feedback on a on a creative level. How are you collaborating with your actors? Um, you know, the trick in TV is that episodic directors are freelance. You're a guest director, and so you kind of go from show to show. So you go to a show that may have. They may have been working together for years. So it's not your cast. It's not your crew. They know their role better than you. So how do you find the balance between being the captain of the ship and the leader and knowing what you want, making your days, having a plan, having a vision, but at the same time being flexible, you know, and in the case of the actors, you may have, you know, figured out the blocking in such a way that's going to fit your thought list. But if your actor's instincts tell them to do something different that still works for the scene, um, but means you have to change your shot list. Are you able to be flexible on the fly? You know, you don't want to move them around like chess pieces and have them feel like you're just this dictator. So we work on all, all of those kinds of things. Um, and then at, at the end of the workshop, we would arrange a time for those directors to go shadow on the show they're going to be directing. So they get to know passing crew ahead of time. This is, um, and then they direct their episode and then they're off to the races. That's that sounds again amazing. If you're a director out there listening, I would yeah. definitely uh, suggest you submit to both of these programs. Now, you obviously have over the years have read a few scripts um, from young writers. What is the biggest mistake you see young writers make? Oh my god, There's so <laughs> many. I mean, okay, so really like simple one is proofreading. You know, uh, <laughs> grammar. Those are the worst. <laughs> Uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it, it, like, if you're bad, if you have tunnel vision, like just give it to someone, give it to a friend, like just, you know, it's, it just shows sort of like lack of, you know, professionalism, lack of, lack of practice, but thank you, professionalism. Um, but I think, you know, sort of creatively, I think, um, 
I think I I see a lot of on the one hour side, you know, with say like genre shows or or any sort of like world building show. Uh, two things: one is that you want to set up your world really quickly and really cleanly, so I know the rules and I understand it, and then it's just the window dressing, and then you get into your characters because. It doesn't matter if we're talking Game of Thrones or we're talking, you know, any other sort of big show. We're not watching it for like dragons, right? Maybe some people are, but we're watching it for character, the emotions, the relationships, right? And so a lot of times you're either the world is not set up clearly enough. And I'm going, wait, I don't understand. Like there's two universes and, you know, like that kind of a thing. I don't want to have to ask questions or all it is is world building and all it is is like set pieces and action and genre yeah, there's and no plot or character character. right there's no plot or character right right yeah. right yeah because i mean look we've all seen dragons uh we don't show yeah. up you know we've all seen vampire shows but like the reason they keep making them is if you have a specific point of view and a different way of doing a vampire show that's really captivating it can be successful but if right. not like who cares yeah we've all seen we, we've seen vampires and we've seen vampires done very very well <laughs> yeah uh, so we don't yeah. yeah it's not just about the it's not the what it, I guess. When did vampires really start kicking back up? I mean, nineties, eighties. Um, well, there was Interview with the Vampire, which was I think like ninety mid nineties. Yeah, Lost Boys and Near Dark and that kind of stuff back yeah. in the eighties. But you know, it was it was it was kind of like with a, specifically with something like the vampires. It was novel back then. Yeah. And like, yeah. ooh, a vampire script. Now it's like a really another Every one. Day. You've gotta you've gotta really take it to another place. Um yeah. now the same question goes for directors. Have you seen a lot of director samples and things like that? Yeah. Is there something that you see constantly from young directors who submit that you're like, they just don't understand this part or they did this wrong? You know, things like that. Yeah. Or even um, just even even after they even after they get into the program, even maybe they're extremely talented as directors, but they don't know how to work the crew. They don't know how to work the set. They don't know yeah. how to work the politics of it all. Yeah. 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 A couple of things. I mean, I think so. I have a threefold answer. Okay. One is, again, a little similar, like it's a little similar to the writer things, you know, the style over substance, you know, like something that's like looks really cool and it's got visuals and it's got all this stuff, but has no soul to it. Um Again, I still, I want it to look good, but uh, but I, again, I'm watching it for the characters. Um, I think in terms of applying, and this is not a, a, a mistake that directors are, uh, make, but it's it's more just a challenge by virtue of what, you know, what we do at Warner Brothers, that there are sometimes really talented filmmakers whose films just feel too tiny, you know, too indie. And I can see the volume, but not every producer uh can you know they can be a little myopic if it's just like you know like quiet little dysfunctional family dramas that in like 1920s kansas in one house and whatever and it's like great performance but there's no scope to it i think again it's not a mistake it's just sort of knowing okay if you're playing to warner brothers and look at the shows that we're doing <laughs> right like often there's often going you know and it's not to say you need to have like action sequences in your material but i think thinking about you know, cinematic quality, visual style, all of that can go a long yeah. way. But you got to play to your audience. Like, who is my customer here when I'm submitting stuff? If Warner Brothers is my customer, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give them the the, the little indie shot in one room, unless it's. Ext- I mean, it has to be at a level that is so good that you just like, yeah. holy Jesus! But if you could yeah. show off a little bit of scope, like we yeah. could put them on the Flash. We could put them on on one of those shows. Yeah, that's why we ask for. That's why we ask for three samples. So if you have one sample that is super tiny, that like your performance isn't just like amazing, and then you have another sample that shows, you know, maybe you're a commercial director, the branded content, it's really like slick and stuff like that. That's great. So we know that you can do that, and you can do that. Um, and then I guess the third piece of advice, which I think is more for you know, writer directors uh, in particular who, you know, come from film and are used to, you know, that auteur driven, uh, I am the sole creative <laughs> voice on this. Sure. That doesn't work well in TV because in TV it's a writer's medium. The showrunner is king. So while yes, you are, like I said, the captain of the ship of this episode, you are servicing another master. And so I think, you know, when I hear about you know, a particular director on their first episode or maybe it's not their first episode, but who just like did not work well with the crew and was sort of, you know, was not collaborative. It's that's something that I always tell people. It's like, if you're going to get into this, know that 
if you are not that. Yes, you bring ideas, but ultimately it's not your decision. But having said that, I think there are a lot of benefits to indie directors working in television. Sustainability, of course, and like making living. Like you go like if you get like three to five episodes in a year that takes up like three to five months and then you've made enough money to live and you can go spend the other part of your year working on your passion project. But I think equally important is that what you get to do as an episodic director is go from show to show. And not A, that means you're directing a lot. You know, a lot of feature directors get to direct what once every couple of years if they're lucky, you know, for a film. You get to you get to you're honing your craft and you get to continue doing it and you get to work in different genres with different casts and crew with different toys. Um, you know, so everything you're doing on the episode on the episodic side is going to make you better director on your own project. Now, you also uh, you travel to a bunch of different festivals and, uh, you know, markets and things like that. And I have to believe that you have been because I've been approached this way. Uh, so I can only imagine what you once they find out who you are, they're like, oh, my God, do they can you talk for everybody listening how not to approach? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Someone in the business, if you're just like that, with that desperation that uh, I, I I call it kind of a cologne that we can smell kind of like Jakar yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you could just yeah. smell it. And it's so off-putting and it's so unprofessional in the way you do it. It's like, I just met you. Hey, can you make my dreams come true? I just met yeah. you. You don't know me. What do I need to do for you to make my dreams come true? And that's generally not the way to approach it. So can you yeah. ex- explain maybe a horror story that you have and and how you should approach someone like yourself at these? Yeah, events? well, actually, there was like one of the most awkward interactions I've ever <laughs> experienced happened at Austin Film Festival, although this wasn't exactly that. But we were at a different mixer and it was I was standing with two of my friends. One's a writer, one's an executive. And we were, we were talking about a mutual friend. And this girl just kind of came into our circle. I was like, uh-huh, 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 like laughing along with us. Like she was like part of the conversation. And she's like, wait, wait, who are we talking about now? And it was like, and she didn't introduce herself. And she just sort of like inserted herself in a very, very awkward way. And um, didn't have an ask of us, which I will, you know, like I was happy about. But we were just sort of like, we didn't know what to do. <laughs> like very so neurotic energy. Ooh, and she was like, oh, oh, yeah, I thought you were talking about this movie. Though. We're like, no, 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 we're talking about a friend of ours. Okay, okay, but like, didn't didn't pick up on like it's like reading the room, right? Right. Um, so that was very weird. Um, but yeah, like there are people who just, I mean, I think in general, most people that I have experienced, or at least when I meet them at, at a festival, are respectful. You know, especially like if I'm, um, like if I'm leaving a panel and so like right. I just like hey, I don't want to take too much of your time. I just have sure, like sure. a quick question. Happy to do that. Sure, know, of that course. Do so I think it's really just, uh, or like at the Driscoll Bar, which is like the hotel that everyone hangs out with at the end of August. It's like from 4 p.m. till you know the wee hours. Everyone's just sort of like hanging out, which is great. And again, happy to have those conversations. But it's like recognizing if uh, if you see someone that you know you want to talk to, um, and they are like in a deep conversation with someone. Um, maybe not the best time to bet in. Like, find find your moment, right? And then again, if if we're sort of in a more social, relaxed atmosphere, just be mindful that we also just like we're happy to have conversations, but we also want to like take a break from you know from time to time. So I think it's just you know being really respectful of people's time. <laughs> I mean, most people I know, including myself and my friend, are happy to give advice and ask you know. Um, but, uh, you know, and then there are times where someone will say like, cause I don't work in development. So someone will say like, oh, can we send you my pilot to see if Warner Brothers wants to make it? And I'm like, I don't, I don't do that. You know? Um, oh, well, can you send it to someone? And again, like, then that requires like me reading it and putting my, my reputation on the line. And, you know, and there have been times that I will send a person or a piece of material, but I think having that ask. I mean, that way, like, puts me in a weird position. Right. And also that ask from somebody you don't know. Like, if you've built a relationship with them, you might know their work or you might, like, all that kind of stuff. It would be a little bit different than than someone just walking up to you and like, hey, here's my script. 
can you go hand it to Samuel L. Jackson? Like, (laughs) like it's, and and that's where a lot of people, you know, hopefully people not listening to the show, everyone listening to the show would not know not to do this. But, um, but a lot of times I've seen, look, people send me material. Like, can you help me produce my movie? I'm like, no, (laughs) do you not know who I am? I, that's not me. It's not what I do at events or festivals. Some people are like, Hey, can you, I know that you interviewed, you know, Edgar Wright, can you get this script to him? I'm like, Oh my God. I'm like, dude, no. Like, even if I could call Edgar up on the phone, which (laughs) I can't, I wouldn't do that because it's the exact same thing. You'd like, I've got to read it. I've got to like, it it makes, come on. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, listen, I have a lot of sympathy for, of course, you know, for, for, for aspiring writers and directors. And it's especially when they are not in New York and LA, because I think it doesn't, I mean, even in New York and L.A., it can feel insurmountable, but you generally may have some connections here or there. But, you know, again, when you go to festivals, you get people from all over the country and world who just are like, how do I do this? I don't know how to figure it out. So I do have a lot of sympathy and want to be helpful. But I think, you know, to your point, it's it's um, yes, like if you are uh, trying to break in as a writer or director, like do your research and figure out strategies and not just like cast a wide net to every person that you have ever come in contact with. Yeah. The shot, the shotgun approach doesn't really work. You got to be more, you know, you got to be more, more surgical uh, with yes. And do, and do your research, do your homework. Don't pitch somebody uh, who does comedy, a horror script. Like that's, (laughs) that's just one-on-one, but it's a lot of people. They're like so desperate. They're like, well, you're in the business. I want to get into the business. Uh, You're my opening. You're my way in. It's just, weird but i wanted to put that out there for people listening because i think it's a service that we need to do for young people coming up because look i look I, I don't know about you but when you were starting out i was starting out i had i bought i literally bought cases of that desperation jacar and i doused myself with it and anytime i would go to an industry party you could literally just smell the desperation on me so i know what it feels like to be on the other side of that um uh, and that's why i'm so like that's why I put that's why one of the reasons I do the show to educate people about yeah don't don't do that it doesn't work (laughs) you're doing God's work I'm trying I'm doing the best I can now where can people go to submit to uh both the television uh writer's workshop and the director's workshop so um we have a website which has all like so much of what I talked about and more and you know as I mentioned um for the writer's workshop, we have, uh, you have to write a spec to get in. We have a list of the accepted shows because it's not every single show uh, on air because that'd be impossible, but it's a really comprehensive list. And we update it, we will update it by the first week of January based on what's been canceled and what we need to add. Um, so that's on there. On the director's workshop side, we also have a list for um, for short filmmakers. So like if, you have a, if you've made a feature, no problem. But if you've made a short, we have sort of like the top, you know, 100 short like Academy qualifying shorts festivals we just want to make sure people are not submitting you know films that they made on their phone um they're unless they're sean baker uh but you know um <laughs> so um uh so that is on our website which of course i need to pull up well you don't have to give it yeah oh you're going go ahead i'm gonna put it in the show notes anyway but go ahead okay it uh it's televisionworkshop.warnerbros.com it's fair enough. And that and also, there's like a contact us button. So if you just have like a general question that, you know, that I have an answer, you know, it goes to, you know, someone will answer that. And um, all right, now I'm going to ask you a few questions that I ask all of my guests. Okay. What advice would you give a filmmaker or screenwriter trying to break into the business today? Cool. Um. I think if it is the only thing that you want to do, and I say this again, it's like a recovering, like struggling actor. Recovering, recovering, struggling actor. (laughs) So, you know, if there's anything, which is like, I don't mean to be like your parent, like if there's anything else you want to do, do it. But if you know that this is your goal, you have to find a way to keep doing it. So if you're a writer, it's even easier. Like you just keep writing. You have to, you know, and if you, um, you know, if, if you can you find like a writer's group, you know, just a couple of friends uh, or colleagues that can keep you disciplined. So, you know, you know, I know writers need deadlines. So if you know you're reading once a month and you have to have a new draft, you have to have a revision, you have to have a pitch, you know, you just have to keep doing it. Even if you have a script that has been very successful and gotten you lots of meetings, 
uh, that's only going to work for a couple of years. And, you know, three years later, people are going to want new material for you. Sure. So I think you have to keep writing. And then directing, yes, you still have to keep directing. It's so much harder, I know, because it costs money. It costs a lot of money to direct stuff. But if that's what you want to do, you have to find ways to do it. And whether it's through, you know, branded content or whether it's, you know, commercials or, you know, I, I don't even know how, you know, how else you find ways to direct. But again, if that's your goal, you have to keep working at it. Uh, it's the only way to, again, hone your skills. Um, and people are, again, going to want to see new material. Like, I don't want someone applying to the director's workshop with something they made 10 years ago. Um, you know, I want to see that you, uh, a, a, not have something that's super dated, but also have the drive. This is, this is what, this is your passion. And this is the only thing you want to do in your life. You've found a way to make it work. Fair enough. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Um, yeah. Uh, don't compare yourself to other people's paths. Um, yes. And, uh, and I still struggle with that from time to time. You know, even, even you know, as I, um, you know, made the switch from acting to, to you know, going the executive path. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, my path was very zigzaggy you know i had friends that i started out at my first agency job with who got a job working for you know ex-producer or whatever and that person became their mentor and they just like championed them and they skyrocketed and now they're like running you know departments and stuff like that and for me i never had that you know i like i said i ended up in mandeville films even though i knew i wanted to work in tv but i was like no i'm gonna work at this feature company and work for the president and then Worked at a, at a TV pod and we just didn't get anything made. And then went to Sundance, which like none of it sort of makes sense, if you will. And if like one other job had come along or I didn't accept something, maybe my path would have been quicker, you know, because some, you know, several of my friends had much faster um, rises than me. And it was always so frustrating. Like, why is it taking me so long uh-huh. to get ahead? You know, uh, why can't I work for the boss who's going to promote me? But having said that, um, when I got this job at Warner Brothers, it it was the culmination. And it was like all of my different experiences, having worked at Sundance running a talent pipeline program, having worked in TV before, made me the perfect person for that job uh, and made the job perfect for me. So hindsight's twenty twenty, you know, and don't compare yourself to other people. And especially if you're a writer or director, it's even, you know, there is no one right way to go about doing it. So just trust that you're, you know, on the right path and be working and it'll happen now what uh three pilots that every television writer should read oh god i know there's different genres but just generally um i mean the friday night lights pilot i think was just so perfect um I mean, I hate to say like breaking down a madman. That's what everybody says. You know, but it's but it's but it's true. But they're 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 great pilots. Um, the Wire, Sopranos. I mean, yeah, Dexter was a great pilot. Um, Lost. Lost was a good pilot too. Lost was a good pilot. I'm trying to think if there's anything more recently. Um, um I, uh, I think the great. Is a great pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or no, there's so many. Okay, that was good. We, we listed a bunch of them off. And three, lastly, three of your favorite films of all time. Oh my God, it's like choosing among my children. Um, let's see. Princess Bride. Genius. Um, Heather's. Oh, so good. Heather's, that's our generation, though. That is so our generation. Yeah, I know. Um, Oh, man. What's the third? Uh, um, Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be on your gravestone, so you could just kind (laughs) of... No, I know. I know. I'm like, do I go with, like, one of those movies that you could just, like, watch over and over and over uh, or something that's, like, important? 
Oh, um, just what? Well, no, yeah, because yeah, something like yeah, Citizen Kane and uh, Seven Samurai, Chandler's right? Exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. One of the best movies of all time that I never want to see again. Right, exactly. I know. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, There's some movies that you watch once, you're like, I'm good. It was fantastic. Yeah. I never want to go down that road again. Uh, I think the one like that that fits that bill the most is Requiem for a Dream. Oh, um, <laughs> that movie, and I was like. I don't know what I just saw. It was brilliant. And I, I can't get those images out of my head ever. Um, but, uh, I remember pie when I saw, when I saw pie too, I was like, I don't need, I loved it. I don't need to see pie again. Like, it's just like, yeah, it's, there's just a thin intensity there, but, um, but I want you, Um, but I'm failing you. I'm failing you on the third (laughs) movie. So I don't know. Um, uh, 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 Clue. <laughs> Clue. Clue. I love Clue. Oh my God. Clue. Please, everyone listening, go watch Clue. Uh, the the great um, uh, Tim Curry. Madeline Kahn. Uh, and Madeline Kahn. Oh my God, Madeline Kahn. And I, I wish a studio would have the cojones to do yeah. what they did with Clue and release three different Rebirth. endings in the theater at the same time so people were like well this is how the movie ended no it didn't it ended this way and there would be oh my god it was such a brilliant marketing move why hasn't anyone done that again i don't know i don't know sorry can i amend it i can i say one more which again i uh uh that i think is like one of again i don't they they don't make movies like this anymore uh goonies Uh, it's just a, a perfect adventure film uh with children that you know what I mean? Like there hasn't been a movie, like obviously we have kids the same age and it's mm-hmm. like, I wish that there was a, a movie like that for them. I just like, I don't think that there is like something smart and fun and not like. It's oh. tough. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to find stuff like that anymore. I mean, and now we, we're sounding like the two old farts in the room. You're know, like, oh, back when we were kids, <laughs> back when we were kids. I, know, what have I, seen recently? <laughs> I don't know. I really like the favorite. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, but Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. I truly appreciate uh, you, uh, you, the work that you're doing, God's work. You're bringing new artists into the world and, and, and hopefully giving them ways to make a living in this insanity that we call the film industry. So I do appreciate uh, everything you do. And thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank Rebecca so much for coming on the show and pulling back the curtain on the Warner Brothers Writers and Directors Television Labs. I truly, truly appreciate it, Rebecca. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 738. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always. Keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.